Welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Gart. As listeners of our show know, each and every week, a guest and I chat about the weekly parasha. That section of the Torah, one of the 54 portions selected by tradition, that are read on a rotating basis from the beginning of the Hebrew cycle at Simchat Torah to the end of the uh, reading, which comes this uh, month. Um, This week, however, we are uh, sharing two ideas with you, the listener. We are speaking about the parasha, and we're also speaking about the Shabbat between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, which has the name of Shabbat Shuvah. The name comes from the Haftarah portion, um, which begins with Shuva Yisrael, return, return, O Israel. Let me give you a summation of the parasha, and then I'll introduce my guest and will enlighten you, as I know he will, about both Shabbat Shuva and the parasha. This week's parasha, according to tradition, is Vayelech. It's found in Deuteronomy 31, and it uh, follows the entirety of that chapter. The parasha of Vayelech recounts the events of Moses' last day of earthly life. We read in the parasha, I am 120 years old today. He says to the people, I can no longer go forth and go in. He transfers leadership to Joshua and according to tradition, either writes or concludes the writing of the Torah in a scroll, which he entrusts to the Levites for safekeeping in the Ark of the Covenant. The mitzvah of Hakhel gathering is given. Every seven years during the festival of Sukkot of the first year of the Shemitah cycle, the Jubilee cycle, The entire people of Israel, men, women, and children, should gather in the Holy Temple in Jerusalem, where the king should read to them from this scroll known as the Torah. Vayelech concludes with the prediction that the people of Israel will turn away from their covenant with God, causing God to hide his face from them, but also with the promise of the words of the Torah that they shall not be forgotten. For out of the mouths of their defendants will come the Torah. As you can see, it is a parasha that is both historical in nature and also speaks to a very deep theological meaning. With me this morning is Rabbi Brooke Sussman. He is the founding rabbi of Congregation Kol Am in Freehold. Now he serves as an adjunct professor at Brookdale Community College in History and Bible as Literature. As well, he has served in a number of community positions in Freehold County in New Jersey. He is known as an outstanding teacher, and it is a great joy to welcome Rabbi Sussman to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. 
Thank you. Thank you for the introduction and uh, a happy new year for those of us who observe this as the Jewish New Year. Thank you. Um, Rabbi Sussman is reminding the listeners, some of whom will know, but some of whom may be uh, unaware, that uh, the Jewish New Year uh, begins its uh, holiday cycle, its holy day cycle in the fall. We've now entered into the Jewish year of 5783. Uh, by tradition, that is the counting since um, the story in Genesis, the birth of the world. And the Shabbat between uh, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, the holiest day of the year, the Day of Atonement, is called Shabbat Shuvah. So Rabbi Sussman, tell our listeners about this notion of Shabbat Shuvah. Well, the term Shuvah means return. and so. It also begs the question, if we return, we have had to have been somewhere. There's also a turn from where we are to where we should be. And that comes along with the notion of teshuva, which is forgiveness, atonement. This is the Shabbat of the turn, the return of the one's renewal. And we ask the question, to whom do we return? To what? To self? To peoplehood? To tradition? To God? To what we had always hoped we wished to be? And it goes into that notion of forgiveness, teshuva, which we as Jews will request uh, this coming week on Yom Kippur, on the Day of Atonement. So why would you um, suggest to our listeners that tradition um, identified this Shabbat um, as needing to remind people of tshuva. Because we are preparing for the Yom Hadin, the day of judgment, when we are judged, as we are every year at this time. These intervening days between the New Year Rosh Hashanah and the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, are known as the Days of Awe. It is an awesome task to be self-reflective. In a sense, let me put it on the basis of all levels. You're walking down the street. You see a wallet lying on the ground. You bend down, you pick it up, you look to the right, the left, in front of you, behind you. Are you looking for its owner or are you looking for witnesses? The choice and the decision is what these days of awe mean. Am I hiding something? Am I ready to steal? Am I ready to take something? Am I going to do something when I have no witnesses? Or am I going to be honorable, notwithstanding that there are no witnesses? Will I return the wallet? That's what I do on Yom Kippur. I don't look for witnesses. I return the wallet. Now, you made an interesting comment to me earlier before we uh, recorded today, um, looking at the etymology of the word uh, Kippurim and making a comparison between that Hebrew word of poor, Purim, and the Jewish holiday of Purim, which is the antithesis of Yom HaKippurim. So I'm wondering. Um, 
if you would share that insight with our listeners, because it seemed to me you hit on a wonderful metaphor of how we might understand this holiday of Yom HaKippurim. Well, the, the singular is Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. But the rabbis refer to it as Yom HaKippurim, the Day of Many Atonements. That's the individualized statement. But they also were very good at making jokes, and the jokes hit the mark. Purim, coming from the book of Esther, tells of our destruction and our salvation by Esther. And Purim is a joyous time when we put on masks. We are anything but ourselves. And so the rabbis say, every other day of the year is Yom Kippurim. It's a day like Purim where we put on masks, we wear facades. We are absolutely un dishonest to ourselves and others. It's the way we present ourselves almost as a scam. Yom Kippur is the day when we cannot make it Kippurim, like Purim. We have to take off the mask. We have to look at ourselves. We have to walk in egoless to become honorable. I mean, it's a fascinating uh, etymology of the holiday, and it's so different from how the day is described in the Torah. Um, in the Torah, this is a day of ultimate sacrifice, and it's a day that places the priestly class in the center of the ritual. But today, of course, the individual has the primary role of making atonement for um, him or herself. Um, that transition is reflective of the change from the Israelite religion to rabbinic Judaism. Um, do you think that most uh, people that you teach understand the significance of that transformation from a biblical perspective to a per religious perspective that uh, so easily calls upon for metaphor and interpretation? Yes, because I believe if if the text, or the holy texts, plural, are the living embodiment of Judaism and Jewish thought and Jewish people and Jewish history, they weren't written in one time for one time. They are creative. It's a, it's a creative continuum because the law and the tradition has to become meaningful to me. You mentioned that it was the time for the priesthood. Well, we are known as a kingdom of priests, a holy people, so that we are all not just responsible and responsive to the Kohen Gadol, the chief priest. We are responsible and responsive to our own selves. And once the Torah was codified, and once the children of Israel became a nation, they also started looking at their texts how to make them contemporary, how to make them meaningful. How do we in the 21st century turn and return and do so meaningfully with understanding? And I know that since my formal retirement from the congregation and teaching old dudes like you and me, 
who actually read newspapers and are au courant with the, with, with the world and they understand politics and they're educated, they recognize exactly the question that you posed. Yes, they appreciate, they understand, and they believe that they are part of a continuum of continual interpretation and reinterpretation so long as they always return to the text for that proof text. So your use of the word return, of course, allows us to make a segue to this notion of Shabbat Tshuva, the Shabbat of Tshuva, the Shabbat of Atonement. Um, How do we explain to people who are not part of the Israelite community who may not be part of the covenant established in the Torah between the people and Adonai, what does this notion of atonement mean with regard to the deity? For some traditions, of course, um, the priest can offer absolution, um, and some uh, traditions, uh, atonement requires um, self-immulation uh, and self-sacrifice. But perhaps you can share with the listeners, what is this really about in the Jewish context? What is atonement? The next time you come to Jersey and we have lunch together and I stab you, we go to lunch and I stab you with a fork. I can't go to God and say, please forgive me for stabbing my friend Stephen with a fork. Because God's going to say, you didn't do it to me. First, beg forgiveness from Stephen. Take him to the hospital. Bind his wounds. Then, once he has forgiven you, then come to me. And by that time, you won't have to come to me because the person whom you injured already forgave you. So that notion of atonement, which um, requires you and I to have an uh, interaction, in our interaction, when you have um, sinned against me, using the word that's part of the vocabulary of this holiday, when you've sinned against me, why does God ever enter into the equation? And are there sins for which we look to God for forgiveness in the Jewish tradition? Sins against God, we go to God. Sins against our fellow humans, we have to be forgiven by that fellow human. Are there sins against God for which God will not forgive us? I think religious tradition always answers that God is forgiving so long as we have atoned to become forgivable. I just can't use a mantra, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, to get me out of punishment, as though it's just one long little critter. I have to, the words mean nothing if they aren't accompanied by action. It's only when the action then corresponds to I am sorry that I am forgiven and forgivable because very often we don't forgive ourselves. And sometimes we have to actually believe that God forgives us so that we can assume the fact that we are forgivable. So the holiday uh, requires the individual worshipers to be quite introspective 
It may be why the holiday requires uh, fasting to help set the tone for introspection. And uh, tradition asks the worshiper um, not to adorn themselves in uh, ways that would be normative. So you're asked not to wash and uh, not to wear uh, spanking new clothes. Um, but the Haftarah, returning to the name of this week, um, Hosea, Shuva Yisrael, return Israel to God, your God. Uh, so what does it mean to return to God? Since we've spoken about what it requires of you and I to uh, affect repentance, how do we return to God? Is it through our interpersonal relationship or are there rituals that we are um, called upon to um, manifest and to perform? You've answered your own question. Yes. It's actions, it's deeds, it's caring. And Yom Kippur is the most frightening day of all, because as you mentioned, it's done without adornment, it's done without food. And the most frightening thing about it is I'm alone with myself. And that's frightening. I can't use other avenues to keep me from that self-reflection. Referring to the Haftarah also, there's a, there's a difficulty in this whole story. As you mentioned when you were giving the, the, the essence of this portion, God knows we are going to backslide. God knows we will go astray. God is going to punish us by using other nations as his agents of, as God's agents of punishment. Why doesn't God keep us from backsliding? You know, what kind of God allows us to commit crimes, to err in that way? Well, obviously, we're offered forgiveness, we're offered atonement, we're offered the, the right of return of the Shuvah. But this calls a lot of God into question, especially when we've read in the prophets, Isaiah, that God knew from the beginning that we were going to screw it up, that we were not, that we were, and it's a quoting from that, 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 that prophet, we are rebellious from birth. Rebellious or evil? Yes. You're a very, uh, you answer in such wonderfully <laughs> rabbinic ways. <laughs> yes. Well, there's, it's, it's interesting. The word yere is awesome. It's also fearful. And so we, we rebel. Yes. We're in fear. We are in awe. And uh, we aren't nice folk. We are, because we have choice, we choose wrongly far, far too often. We aren't sweet, kind, gentle, genteel, caring folk. And that's why we Jews have 613 commandments, not good deeds. A mitzvah is not a good deed. It is a commandment. It forces us to be holy, to be human, and to be humane. Following those mitzvot, following those laws, 
force me to go beyond myself and care about, quote, the other, unquote. So in pursuing my question just a little bit further, there are certainly religious traditions that suggest that um, human beings are evil um, and religion is there to um, punish them um, in a way that would remove evil from them. You're suggesting that Judaism doesn't use the word evil, but rather says that out of the free choice God um, provided us, we make decisions good and bad. When we make good decisions, we will know it because we've followed the commandments. And when we've made poor decisions, we will know them because we have avoided the commandments. But Rabbi Sigmund, Rabbi Sigmund Freud gave us the id, the ego, and the superego. Judaism gave us Yetzer HaTov, a, a, the inclination toward the good, and Yetzer HaRa, the inclination toward the bad. We make choices. And so choices the Yetzer HaTov and the Yetzer HaRa sound as if they are uh, like the uh, angel and the devil on your shoulder, always in tension with each other. And somehow in the middle, we are forced or uh, cajoled or enticed uh, to choose a path. Jews do not have Satan. So there's not Satan out there vying for my immortal soul. We have inner tensions and inner inclinations that allow us to make sometimes thoughtful, sometimes thoughtless choices. The choice is ours, which is exactly why we have to have the shuva, the return, the return to the true, to the good, to the knowing, rather than maintaining that posture of egosomeness, where it's all for me Everyone else, everyone else exists as a means to only my end. So it sounds as if in the structure of uh, creation, there's room for human beings to make mistakes. There's the necessity to allow humans to make mistakes because without mistakes, we don't learn. Don't. Don't put your hand on that on the hot stove. Anyone looking? Pick up that wallet. Look around. We make mistakes. We are human. God did not make us perfect. God allowed us to be human. So humanity mistakes. is in that context. What distinguishes us is our ability to make mistakes and then to rectify them. Yes. And otherwise, 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 there is no reason for our existence. So throughout Jewish tradition, there's the notion that we are created in the image of God. But Selim Elohim. If we are created in the image of God and we are given um, permission to make mistakes, does that suggest that God is less than perfect and God makes mistakes? That's a session for the next nine hours in, in the taping. 
But in, in essence, we have, there's so many books that try to quote, humanize, unquote, the God of creation. Because we read in the, in the Torah, this first five books of the Hebrew Bible, God changes his mind quite often. God makes mistakes. God, in fact, in Genesis says to the ministering angels, you know, I might have screwed it up. The whole Noah story. I'm going to make a second creation because the first one weren't so good. We have the golden calf incident where the people screw up. God regrets that he created human beings. In that anthropomorphism of God that we find in uh, the Torah and then in later Jewish tradition, is that meant to reinforce this uh, notion of B'Tselem Elohim? As uh, God does these things, so you too should feel um, it's okay to do them. As God would make a mistake in um, Adam and Eve, um, or in Cain and Abel, or in the Tower of Babel, or any number of times that um, the book of Exodus tells us that God is required uh, to forgive the Jewish people. Um, we, in our search to be um, exemplars of God's behavior, um, does that give us permission to make mistakes? I think when you, we use the term B'Tselem Elohim in the image of God, I think we can say in the image of the ideal of God. And we do make mistakes. Uh, we have not we have the right because we are human and interestingly could it be that just as we are required to follow these commandments these mitzvot could it be that god also chained himself to those mitzvot that god himself has to follow the mitzvot our conversation certainly takes us away from the notion of um the divine as simply the mitzvah, the commander. Um, even though earlier you defined mitzvah as a commandment rather than a good deed, and a commandment does um, imply that somebody makes that command, uh, whether religiously or... Maybe, maybe we can change the word from command to moral imperative. Ah, because then it puts it on a wholly different plane. Because and, and so how would you explain to our listeners the notion of a moral imperative? And how would you explain to our listeners what it means to be in um, default of the moral imperative that would require us to make uh, repentance? There are 613 commandments in the first five books of the Hebrew Bible, and they are divided into vertical commandments and horizontal commandments. The horizontal commandments are how God and uh, the, the vertical commandments are how I relate to God and, and, and tradition and how I bring my sacrifices, how I praise, how I do this. And then there are the horizontal, how you and I deal with each other on an ethical, moral basis, so that neither you nor I have to worry about being hurt by the other. 
My guest this morning has been Rabbi Brooke Sussman, the Rabbi Emeritus of Congregation Kol Am in Freehold, New Jersey. He has taken us on a journey of exploration, both of this week's parasha, but more importantly, he's helped all of us try and understand the concept of tshuva, the concept of repentance. I want to thank him on your behalf and remind you that you can um, find a uh, podcast of this morning's wonderful conversation on chri.ca or on iTunes. And you can also have a visual uh, recording of this on YouTube. For Rabbi Sussman and myself, we wish you shalom, a good day, and if you will be observing Yom Kippur, a meaningful fast. Thank you.